Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans and to Romans chapter 5 today as we continue our study through this wonderful book. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1119. Romans chapter 5, I'll be preaching just on verses 1 through 2 today, uh, but I'd like to read all of verses 1 through 11. So if you would stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word. Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11. The word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." I want to read just the first two verses again, because this will be my focus today. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of years ago, when I realized that I was going to be traveling a bit more for committee meetings and board meetings and such, I decided that it would be good to sort of marry myself to one of the two airlines that flies in and out of Gainesville. And so I got a Delta credit card and I started spending on it and buying my plane tickets on it and doing all the things that I needed to do in order to sort of build my status with Delta. And after a little while, I started climbing the ladder of status from silver, and then I made it to gold, and then just last year, I reached platinum status. And uh, with platinum status, they sent me a purple badge that I could put on my bag to sort of silently boast to everyone in the airport uh, about my status. 
But with that, that tag came a lot of new benefits, new privileges that were available to me as a platinum member that were not available to me before. Uh, so I got to board earlier, you know, even before the veterans and the families with young children. And when I would scan my phone, they would thank me for choosing Delta and for my loyalty. And uh, one of these times, the first time I actually got this status upgrade, I, I scanned my phone and they informed me that I'd been upgraded to first class, even though I just bought a main cabin ticket. If I wanted a drink, I could have a drink and my luggage even got an upgrade. It signaled to the crew, that purple tag, that my luggage was more important than other people's luggage. <laughs> that it was to be offloaded first from the carousel. And I discovered that there's all kinds of these benefits. I would like you to think for a moment about that word, benefits. Because that is what we are talking about today. What does that word mean? It comes from a Latin compound word, which means to do good to. A benefit is something good that is done for you. It is some advantage. It is something profitable that you gain from someone or from something. In the case of my Delta benefits, it is the advantages that come with belonging to that special tier. But today, in this passage before us, Paul is describing the benefits that belong to those who are justified. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have. And then he will go on to list a bunch of different benefits. Now, we are only going to get to the first three of these benefits today. But before we even begin to talk about these benefits, maybe it's good to just stop and remind you for a moment what that word justification means. Because he says it's because we've been justified, since we've been justified, that we receive these benefits. So what are we talking about by justification? That word, I'll remind you, is a word that's taken from the realm of the law court. That is to say, justification is a legal term. And that makes perfect sense in the context of Romans, where Paul has been talking about God, who is the judge of all the world. We find that in chapter 3, verse 6. That he is the judge who is going to render to each one according to their deeds. We find that in chapter 2, verse 6. And he is also gloriously the judge who will justify the ungodly simply through faith in Jesus Christ. That is to say, he will not count their sins against them, but instead, because of their faith, he will count them as righteous in his sight. And it won't be for anything in them. It will simply be because of the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to them or counted to them. You can think of justification like this. We all know that there is going to be a judgment day on the last day. Justification is God's legal 
declaration and verdict of that last day coming into the present. But instead of that verdict being guilty and condemned, justification is a verdict of righteous and free. And that verdict comes right now in the present to all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the way that Paul summed it up in chapter 4. He said this, And to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so justification has these two parts. It has, on the one hand, the forgiveness of our sins, his not counting our sins against us. And on the other hand, his counting the righteousness of Jesus to us, what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Our sins are placed, counted upon the head of Christ. His righteousness is counted, placed upon the head of sinners. What a wonderful thing to know that we have been justified. To know that that verdict of not guilty but righteous has been declared over our lives as those who are trusting in Christ. Well, today as we're looking at this passage... Paul is pressing into the glory of that pronouncement and of what it means for those who are justified. And so as he does, he's going to rattle off these seven glorious benefits that accompany and flow from justification. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have. And today, as I said, we're just going to get to the first three of these benefits And we'll get to the rest next week. But I assure you that it's worth our time to slow down and to just consider these first three glorious benefits. And so what are they? What are these first three benefits that belong to those who have been justified? What do we have? We have peace with God. Verse 1, we have peace with God. Verse 2, We have access to God. We have access to God. And verse 3, we have hope in the glory of God. We have peace with God. We have access to God. And we have hope in the glory of God. So here's the first benefit then. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is peace? We talk about peace a lot, and we talk about it in different ways. Sometimes we talk about peace in the context of war and conflict. Peace is the absence of conflict, the cessation of hostilities, right? It's the calm that comes when the battle is over. Other times we will talk about peace as sort of a state of mind. We'll say that we have peace of mind or peace of heart, that sort of calm sense of quiet and tranquility. 
And really, both of these aspects apply here when Paul says that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. On the one hand, he's talking about something that is objective. He is talking about a peace that has been won for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's just finished chapter 4 that way. He said he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. His death and resurrection accomplish this peace for us. And, And the fact that he has to make peace for us implies something, doesn't it? It implies that we were not at peace that we did not have peace with God. Instead, we had conflict. We had hostility. He's going to go on in verse 10, and he's going to say, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Every human being that is born into this world, every natural son and daughter of Adam, is a natural-born enemy of God. From our very first breath, we are at war with our Creator. Paul has spent three chapters proving that point, and he summed it up in chapter 3 as he said that none is righteous, not even one. No one seeks for God. And he described that enmity and that hostility in terms of the way that we live and the way that we use these bodies. God created us for His glory. God created us to honor Him. He created us in His image to bear His image, to be like Him. And yet, Paul says, we don't behave like Him at all. We use these bodies that He created for good, for evil. We use our mouths to lie and curse and deceive. The venom of asps is under our lips, he said. We use our feet to run to evil to run. They are swift to run to bloodshed. He said that our eyes have no fear of God in sight. And in the midst of that description of all of our evil, our war, our enmity against God, he says, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. We have not known peace We have known war, war with our Creator, war with our fellow man, war even with ourselves. But now Paul says that through the gospel, all of that has changed. Something remarkable has changed. We who did not know the way of peace now have peace with God. That is to say that when Christ died on the cross, All of God's anger and wrath against sin, all of that conflict and that war was poured out upon Christ. God went to war, not with us. He went to war with His own Son. He treated Him as though He were an enemy. And the wages of our sin, the death that we deserved, was fully satisfied in that death of Christ, so that when He rose again, when He came from death to life, it marked the cessation of hostilities. He was raised for our justification. It marked the end of the war. It brought about peace. 
with that resurrection, we have peace, an objective peace, a settled peace, the kind of peace that comes when the war has been won. You see, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the the resulting state that comes about when the conflict is over, when the conflict has been won, when there is a victor, and Christ, through his death and resurrection, has won our victory. And because it is objective, it actually doesn't matter how we're feeling on any particular day because it doesn't depend upon us. Now, I am not saying that your feelings are not important. They are important (laughs) Uh, because you often sometimes still feel like you're at war with God. I think this is a huge part of the piece, that it's not just objective, it's also subjective. We have peace of conscience. Like our catechism says when it asks about the benefits that accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification, the very first of those benefits that it lists is that we have peace of conscience. Paul has talked a lot about conscience, hasn't he? Conscience is that God-given warning signal that lets us know that what we are doing is either right or wrong, that it is either in accordance with God's law or it is against God's law. Paul has said that even those who don't have the law of God have this warning signal. They know in their hearts that what they are doing is right or wrong because their conscience either accuses them or excuses them. Your conscience talks to you. Your conscience is a voice that accuses you or excuses you. And part of the peace that comes in being justified is that our conscience is at peace. So that even when our conscience accuses us, we have this objective peace with God. I think one of the most beautiful biblical expressions of this is when John says that even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And that is important because you know how it is as a Christian when you fall into some sin, especially if it's a particularly egregious sin, a sin that you are prone to, a besetting sin, and you feel absolutely laid low by it. The Spirit is convicting you of your sin. The devil is accusing you of your sin, and your own heart is condemning you for your sin. And yet, even in the midst of that, the gospel is meant to give you peace. You can appeal to the death and resurrection of Christ and to the peace that has been won. And you can know that in spite of how badly you have behaved, in spite of how badly you feel, if you are still trusting in Christ, God has not abandoned you. He is not at war with you. He is not out to get you. If you are in Christ, He loves you. He forgives you. He's gracious and merciful to you. And so when you confess your sins to Him, when you acknowledge them, to confess in the New Testament means to agree with God about your sin, to say that your sin is really and truly as evil and as heinous as it actually is. 
when you confess your sins to God, He does not lash out at you and punish you and treat you like an enemy. But when you confess your sins, He treats you like a daughter. He treats you like a son. He treats you like His own dear child. You know, it is not accidental that when Jesus is raised from the dead, remember, what is He raised for? He's delivered up for our transgressions, but He's raised for our justification. When Jesus is raised from the dead and He goes and He meets with His disciples in that upper room. Do you remember that? Now, these are the same disciples who had abandoned Him in His hour of need. Uh, These are the same disciples who were ashamed of Him and were now hiding out in fear of the Jews. But Jesus, raised from the dead, comes and he meets with them and he holds out his hands to them. And what does he say? He greets them. Peace. Peace be to you. And so he greets all of his justified children in the same way. He greets you that way. When you feel like you are at war, when your conscience accuses you, And you come to Christ. He holds out his hands. And you see those marks in his hands. And he says, peace. We receive peace with God. Not only do we receive peace with God, but we receive access to God. Having been justified by faith. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is an interesting word, this word access. It's a word that is used in the Bible and a lot in ancient uh, texts, ancient literature, Greek literature. Not simply to refer to access, but to a right of access to royalty. That is what the word means. Like when King Ahasuerus, remember this in the book of Esther, when King Ahasuerus holds out his golden scepter to Esther, and she has the right to come into his royal presence. It's a word that means actually to be introduced or to be presented in court, in a royal court. And I think that's the way we're meant to think of it here, that we are granted access not not just to Ahasuerus, right? Or not to some earthly king, not to some earthly president. We are granted access to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. We have an audience with the King of Glory. Through Jesus, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And notice that God's presence is synonymous with grace, it is a realm of grace. His realm, His throne, is a throne of grace for those who have faith in Christ. Christ, through His mediation, presents us in heaven's court. He brings us in and presents us in heaven's court to stand in the very presence of God. And note that language of standing. We stand here. This is not just a periodic approach. It's not just an occasional audience with the Lord. It's as though we live in the temple. It's as though we have this right of access to come into God's presence because we have been introduced and now we have standing here. 
Uh, Paul uses this same word in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 17 through 19. And note the way he brings together these, these ideas of peace and access. He says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off, that is, Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, that is, the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what this right of access is. It is that makes us citizens. It makes us heirs of his household. Paul is going to go on in Ephesians 3 to say, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Because of the work of Christ, because he has justified us, we can come boldly and confidently before the throne of grace. We can stand because we stand in grace. Now, grace is something that we don't deserve, isn't it? That's the whole point of grace. We don't deserve to be there. We don't deserve to have this privilege. We don't deserve to have this right of access. It's grace to us. But because our sins have been washed away, because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, because the resurrected Christ stands there bearing the marks of the cross, we can confidently come into God's presence. Cranfield says this. He says, God does not confer the status of righteousness upon us without at the same time giving himself to us in friendship. Having access means that we are made friends with God. We are not enemies. We are known by Him, and we know Him. We stand as servants in His court, ready to do His bidding. We get to speak to Him in prayer, and to know that He will hear our prayers, that our prayers aren't just bouncing off the ceiling, because there is no ceiling, (laughs) because we are in the very presence of God when we approach Him in prayer. By faith, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ to have this audience with the triune God and there before the throne of His grace. Beloved, you can confess your sins to Him and hear His voice of peace and pardon. And there you can rejoice in Him. You can speak of your love for Him and praise Him. There you can have conversation with Him. You can pour out your heart to Him. You can speak of your fears with Him. You can tell of your joys with Him. Tell of your desires to Him. And you may do all of this because you have access to Him through faith in Christ. Christ is our access. He's the one mediator between God and man. And and I think it's important to say that this access is by faith. And that means that it's not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. Christ has gone into God's very presence as a forerunner on our behalf, but we go there by faith. We stand there by faith, and we look for and long for the day when faith gives way to sight, but that day is not yet. But that also brings us to our final point because there's another benefit that we still have to look forward to, and that is that being justified by faith, we rejoice in hope. 
of the glory of God. That one day, faith will give way to sight. There is something to be hoped for, something to be longed for, an experience of the Lord's grace and goodness, of His friendship and fellowship that we do not yet experience, and yet we hope for it, we long for it. Because we have been justified by faith, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now let me just say a few things about this. First, that this word that's translated as rejoice, it's actually the same word that was translated earlier in Romans as boasting. It's that word that says that Abraham had nothing to boast about before God. It's usually a word that has a very negative connotation, the kind of speech that is is blameworthy, the kind of speech that usually goes hand in hand with pride. But here you'll notice there's nothing negative about it at all. It's all positive. Because the boasting here is not in us. It is not in what we have done. The boasting here is in hope of the glory of God. Actually, the verbal form of the word glory would not be a bad translation. That idea of deriving great pleasure or, or taking great pride in something We might say that we glory in our salvation. That's the sense of it. That we glory in the hope of glory. So rejoice is not really a bad translation, but what is it that we are glorying in? What is it that we are boasting in? What is our pride and joy, as it were? It is in hope of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is something important for you to understand. The word glory, the Hebrew word kavod, literally refers to something that is heavy or something that is weighty. And yet in the Bible, the glory of God is, is, is sort of the visible manifestation of the weightiness of His person. So you might remember how in the Old Testament that Shekinah glory of God fills the presence, uh, fills the temple with God's presence. That glory was represented as a thick cloud of resplendent light. The kind of light that shone on the face of Christ when he was transfigured before his disciples, of which they have said, we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. The glory of God is the visible magnificence and beauty of the invisible God. God cannot be seen, but God makes His glory known. To see God, what we have sometimes called the beatific vision, to see His glory is the hope of every true believer. Here we hope in the glory of God. But what has Paul also said about this glory? He said a chapter ago that all have sinned, and have fallen short of the glory of God. Because of our sins, we are not attaining to that beatific vision. We are not attaining to that glory of God. And yet through the gospel, now we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice in the hope of standing in that glory. Not just by faith, but by sight. Of gazing on the splendor and majestic radiance of Almighty God seeing the glory radiating from the face of our Savior. You know, Jesus prayed for that. 
He prayed in John 17 when he said, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He said, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. When we see the glory of God, we do not see peering past the veil to see God in his essence. We see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. That is where God makes his glory known to us. And because we have been justified by faith, we have hope of the glory of God. Because we've been forgiven, because we've been accounted righteous, we can hope in this. And hope in the Bible is not just wishful thinking. We sometimes use the word hope that way. We use the hope to to talk about things that we don't have any real expectation of coming true. But in the Bible, that's not the way it speaks of hope. It's not something that's in doubt. It's not something that's uncertain. It refers to a confident expectation that we have. We hope for the glory of God because it is our certain expectation. We wait for it with patience. I think the old hymn, The Church is One Foundation, describes this waiting and hoping beautifully. It says it like this, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious will be the church at rest. That vision glorious is that third glorious benefit. It belongs to the justified to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Those are glorious benefits, aren't they? That you have peace with God, an objective peace accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ, that you who are estranged and enemies with God have through His work been brought near. And that objective peace of God bleeds over into your subjective peace with God, that you have peace of conscience, that you have assurance and know that God loves you and is favorable to you. That God is greater than your heart, even when your heart condemns you. You have peace with God. You also have access to God. You, probably none of us in this room, will ever have an audience with the President of the United States. Who cares? You have an audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You have standing in His royal court. You have peace and you have access and you rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And in that day, beloved, in that vision glorious, God will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and pain and sorrow will be no more, and you will see the glory of God shining in the face of your Savior. There's one final thing I want to say about these benefits. I began with an analogy about my Delta benefits. And I want to return to that analogy for just a moment. I really do love having those airline benefits. But do you know what? My Delta benefits can be easily lost. I don't get to just keep them forever. I have to maintain them. 
I have to maintain that status annually. I have to spend money. I have to make trips. I have to buy tickets. And if I don't, then my status will be downgraded. Not so with the benefits of justification. Unlike my Delta benefits, which I had to earn and which can be easily lost, you do not earn any of these benefits. They have been earned for you. And what's more, they cannot be lost. They can no more be lost to God's elect than Jesus can be unraised from the dead. He was delivered up for your trespasses, and he was raised for your justification. And that means that as long as Jesus lives and reigns and is at God's right hand, you who are trusting in him can be absolutely secure in your justification. You can know that that verdict of the final day has already been pronounced and declared over your life, that you are righteous and you are free. And if that is true, if that is true, then you cannot lose the benefits of justification either. All of your life, you may know that you have peace with God, that you have access to God, and that you have hope in the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful benefits, these privileges that we have not earned but have been earned for us and which cannot be lost. Lord, we thank you that through faith we have this access into your presence. We have standing in your royal court because we have peace with you. And having peace and access, we also have hope in the glory of God. Lord, we long for that day. We long to see you face to face. Uh, even as Paul says, we all with unveiled face will behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory unto another. Lord, we long for that day when we will see your glory shining in the face of Christ. But until that day, we thank you that we see that glory shining in the gospel. And we thank you for this justification by faith that we have and for the benefits that attend it. And we pray that you would so work these things into our hearts that we might have assurance of your love and peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Spirit. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't help but think that when that hymn was written, that uh, Thomas Chisholm was reflecting on Romans 5, 1 and 2. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. And all of that depends on the great faithfulness of God. When we come to the Lord's Supper table... We do not come to this table because we had a faithful week. We come to this table because God is a faithful God. We come to this table in faith that God is going to continue to be a faithful God. He is going to continue to be true to His promises. And when we come to this table, what do we find? We find these symbols which Jesus says represent his, his body and his blood, which is given for our peace, 
which is given to give us access to God and which is given to give us hope in the glory of God. And so as we come to this table today, come knowing that if you have faith in Christ, you have peace with God. And these emblems are a symbol of that peace. As you come, come knowing that you have access to God and that these, these symbols are emblems of that access. And as you come, come in hope, hope of the glory of God, because this meal not only looks backward to that meal of the Lord's Supper when he first instituted it, it also looks forward in time. It looks to that great marriage supper of the Lamb when you will see the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. And so come in faith and have your faith nourished and nurtured in Christ. But only come, only come, if you have true faith in Christ. This meal does not belong to everyone. This meal belongs to those who are the disciples of Jesus. How do you know that you are a disciple of Jesus? Have you been baptized into his name? Has the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit been put upon you in baptism? Uh, Do you have true faith and repentance? Are you looking to him, trusting in him? Do you belong to his church as a communicant member? If those things are true of you, then you are welcome to come to this table and find assurance. But if those things are not true of you, there's also a warning in this table. And the warning is in the symbols themselves. The bread represents a body that was torn to pieces, and the wine represents blood that was shed. It's a picture of God's wrath and anger against sin and against those who are yet his enemies. And so if you know that you are an enemy of God, the way to be reconciled is simply through faith in his son. And so today, even though you might let these elements pass you by, let me encourage you not to let Christ pass by, but look to him in faith. In your heart, call out to him. He promises whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you want to know what it means to be his disciple, I would love to talk to you about that. But as we come, those who have been bought by him, who've been engrafted into his family, made citizens of his kingdom. Let's come in faith and let's pray that the Lord would use these ordinary elements now uh, for this holy purpose. Lord, as we approach your table, we thank you that we may approach with peace of conscience, knowing that we have this right of access. Uh, And Lord, I pray that even as we receive these elements from your hand, Lord, that uh, you would use them in our hearts to assure our hearts before you that you would uh, cause that salve of peace to come over our guilty consciences and that we would be reminded that when you look upon us, you look upon us in the righteousness of your Son. And so, Lord, use these ordinary elements in this special and wonderful way, Lord, that, that you would build us up in every Christian grace, even now. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.